Brendan, I will wait until you get around to the other side. Or are you just looking at... No, you're... Okay, good. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. I am now completely spherical at seven fucking percent body weight. Do I like being like this? Absolutely not. I need a system of IVs to keep my heart moving. It's terrible. I want to die. But I'm proving a point that you can be lean as fuck and a complete perfect ball. <laughs> That's the, the, the final okay. stage of swollness. Yeah. Is you just become spherical. Yeah. You just need pie to measure your biceps. <laughs> so as long, as long as we're waiting for Matt, I'd just like to take this opportunity to apologize for uh, lending Kathy Griffith my life-like dummy of Donald Trump, my Donald Trump real doll. I did not know she was going to use it for that purpose to frighten a child. If Baron Trump feels afraid right now, I will protect Baron. I will jump over the White House fence through Secret Service protection using a combination of melee attacks and stealth. <laughs> and I will go and I will protect Baron. I will have to take him back to my apartment. This is a threat to the Trump family that I will protect <laughs> your child. I feel like this, I is, feel like this, is, the this role, is not fucking satire. This is the role you were born to play, protecting the president's son. This is an escort yeah. mission, yeah. Felix. You Baron, have to, warning, you are too far away from Baron. <laughs> you are going to lose the mission. You're Sinbad in First Kid. Yeah. Oh, right. I should... No, I'm Val Kilmer in Spartan. Because <laughs> everything I say is fucking retarded. But people respect okay, me. Okay, we, we got Matt here. Anyway. Greetings, friends. It's Chapo. We're back again for your midweek show. I am Will Meneker. Joining me, as always, Felix Biederman. Hey, everyone. Matt Christman. Hi. Amber Ali Frost. Howdy. And special guest this week, our friend R.L. Stevens. R.L., welcome. What's happening? A bee's in the trap, you know? <laughs> I've been waiting months to say that. No lie. I know it sounds corny and I sound whack as fuck, but like I'm excited as fuck to be here. <laughs> We're excited to have you. Uh, we'd like to, we want to talk to you about uh, a recent piece that you've just written for a Viewpoint magazine that's a critique of uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates. We want to talk to you about your experience as an organizer. But before we get to any of that, we have to say right off the bat... What the fuck? And first of all, are you okay? RL, I'm are you okay? <laughs> and what the fuck? They're gunning for you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for the people that don't know, just after I released the Coats article, I fucked around and got hit by a car. <laughs> In a hit and run, you know? Coats got shooters out here. He got hitters, man. He's not playing. So you got hit. You were, you were in a hit and run. You were a pedestrian and someone just swiped yeah. you with a car. Yeah, mysteriously, after the article yeah, came it's out. it's the whole thing. But, you know, like Kanye through the wire, you know, I'm still here. You know, I'm spitting. I'm spitting through the... the <laughs> what was between, the... Uh, between the Fender and Me by Ta-Nehisi <laughs> <laughs> What was the... Uh, did you get a make and model on this automobile? We got to put our, all of our listeners... We've got to crowdsource justice right now. Yeah. Everyone, if you see any car out there, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, the, the craziest part, though, is that right at, I was at the In These Times um, office, which is where Jacobin, um, where the Jacobin office is. And right across the street is like a well-known drug front, like straight up Italian mafia like type shit. And so they have cameras all over the place. But we were like too shook to like ask them like, hey, uh. Can we uh, use some of your camera footage? <laughs> hit me. Nah, man. I'm not trying to go out like that. You know, I'm, I don't want to know that bad. Can we, so <laughs> all I saw is a green car speeding away. That's it. You heard it here, folks. If you see a green car anywhere, put Open the driver fire. under citizen's arrest. <laughs> <laughs> and Arel, how was your, uh, what was your sort of firsthand experience like with uh, the American hospital and emergency care system? Yo, like, all right, jo all jokes aside, like I had to go to Cook County, right? Because I'm broke Ooh. as fuck. And I went into Cook County. This shit, some like I I've been to the ER before, but like people, like people actually died there. Like you hear, like I've seen on TV, like where they notify a family that their loved one or friend has passed. That like happened. I could like hear it. And that's, that was unreal. Um, the level of like the connection between like poverty and violence, like the guy, there was a guy next to me 
who uh, got stabbed by his girlfriend and he was he was on probation like he couldn't he felt like he couldn't get out of the situation and his mama was like you need to leave this girl and he was like she does everything for me and he refused to like get out of this abusive situation because uh he was broke as fuck and had no options then another dude he um when they notified a family that their loved one had been killed because the guy came in with two gunshot wounds to the chest like micah micah utrecht who's a jacobin editor was with me um because we had just recorded our podcast, Stockton Tim Malone. And, uh, yeah. So, so he was with me in the ER, and he saw the dude with the gunshot wounds. And dude didn't make it. They notified his family. His family was like, no, no, he a bitch. Let me back there. Like, I, I don't understand what that was. I don't, I don't know why he was yelling that, but, but I was not the only one kind of shook by that. Because the dude next to me was like, hey, doc, hey, doc. Um, and then he says, I'm OTG. And I was like, OTG, like the Chief Keef shit? Oh my God. Like he, was, <laughs> he was, he was, he was like, he was like, I'm in a gang, I'm OTG, and like, am I safe here? And like, he was like really concerned because he got shot in the eye and he got shot two weeks ago Jesus. and had been not going into the ER. And he like finally passed out uh, two weeks later, which was the day he was in. And he was like, all right, I got to go. And he's like, I, I don't want to die because he was more scared of like the people coming in to finish him off than he was like about dying from his uh, initial injuries. Like, so it was shit like that that was just like real as fuck. And by, and, and by the people coming to finish him off in the hospital, you mean uh, Aetna? <laughs> I mean, like, I don't, yo. You mean the Republicans? <laughs> <laughs> this shit is real in there, man. That, uh, the county hospital, I'd never been, in, been through anything like this, man. I watched every season of ER, so I totally get what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever, I watched yeah. The Wire, so yeah. I understand. <laughs> I watched Bullworth. Uh, every time I went to the hospital, you know, I was in a gang, and I had to be moved. But I was, I was in one of the gangs of uh, people who wear leather jackets and sing songs. <laughs> and I was afraid that our opposing gang would come into my room and Felix sing a song a about how they beat me. Yeah. Well, RL, did they, uh, did, did they at least give you some uh, good drugs? Yo, too good. Um, they had me they had me okay so i took i took the took the drugs right and they really kicked in like two hours later and i swear to god i was up crying like mumbling like i was like a 2014 future (laughs) mixtape like it was i was on some other shit the drugs were too good they were too good um, Did yeah. they give you fucking ayahuasca? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bring this up because, uh, you know, Felix uh, also had a, a trip. You know, he had some cavities filled the other week, and he was uh, bitching that they didn't give him Oxycontin in New York. But yeah. they would have in <laughs> Chicago. Yeah, no, I mean, like, they... Um, it's important when you go into your dentist, you demand drugs so they respect you and give them to you. No, they didn't even give me anything. That was the problem. Like, I... Like, they do fuck around in your mouth and poke around in it a lot. It's not, like, something you get over quickly, like getting hit by a car. Like, it's... Poke around in your mouth and filled cavities. Uh, RL, who I've met once, was hit by a car. It's been a hard week for me. And I don't think I've ever caught a fair shake. And it just... I don't know. I just don't know how long I can keep going with God singling me out like this. Don't worry about it, Felix. I'm making you a purple heart. Oh, thank you, buddy. And ribbon, and I'm going to give it to you, and then you can wear it and get half off at the Sizzler. <laughs> well, uh, uh, we wish you a, uh, a speedy recovery, and we wish uh, only swift justice to the person who uh, was driving that automobile, who may or may not uh, write for the Atlantic. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, get, getting to that, um, so... Like I said, we wanted to talk to you about the, this piece that you wrote for Viewpoint, which is sort of a, is a critique of uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates and uh, his, mo- uh, his most recent book, Between the, uh, the World and Me. Um, yeah. Um, well, first of all, if you'll indulge me for a moment, I just wanted to, before we launch into this stuff, I wanted to take a moment to recognize two things. Uh, one, <clears throat> so I, like Kianga Yamada Taylor had to cancel a lot of her public appearances um, this week or in, for the foreseeable future, I'm assuming based on some threats from white supremacists and uh, like basically a mod rounded up by Fox news. So I wanted to take a moment to um, recognize her and to wish her well. And then number two, 
uh, this month actually will make five years since my dad died. And so he was, his name was Reverend Robert Stevens. And so uh, when anytime I get a chance to like do something um, as far as public speaking or talking about the ideas that I have, he was a big part of my life and a big part of like getting me to the point where I am and he'd be proud. So I wanted to take a moment to recognize him. Now, with that being said, back to the show. Uh, <laughs> I guess like, you know, Coates is probably one of the most like famous like public intellectual figures in America right now. He's probably one of the most respected writers. And uh, I guess like I mainly know Coates as for being annoying in this regard, introducing the term bodies to every tryhard wannabe on the planet who now uses it freely in exchange with uh, people, which would be just as good. But yeah, it that, would be better. It would be better, actually. Bodies is what you call someone when they die. Mm-hmm. I, I um, it's it, Foucault bullshit. By the way, Foucault went reactionary. Maybe don't rely on his grammar. It also destroyed my my other small business, my uh, jazz nightclub, Hard Bodies. <laughs> but RL, I want to get into the, the the specifics of the piece. But like, could you? T- like, what is it with you? You mentioned in the article, he, it's just, it's a short book. It's about two hundred fifty pages or so, under three hundred pages, and he uses the word bodies probably three hundred times in the book. Did you do like a a word search on that? And what accounts for it with the, this sort of like this writerly tick that he has with that with that particular phrase? Yeah. So this idea of like the bodies that was the first thing that really bothered me because initially, I I first started thinking about it because. Uh, Coates had an excerpt of the book that was printed in the Guardian and the word it was just a really really short excerpt it was just a few paragraphs long and the word body and body the words body and bodies were just littered throughout this little piece and I'm like why is this happening especially when you juxtapose that against the fact that the main impetus for or the main like thing that he's focused on is like the spirit you know, like the the morality of of white people, but it's the bodies, you know, of black people. Like it's this juxtaposition where white people are human; they dream, they have morals, they have consciousness that has to be aroused. But black people are are defined by, you know, inhuman qualities. Their 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 bodies, their physical forms, which to me was like a a weird kind of. I know he's not doing the same thing as like. Uh, racists who say that we have like we as black people have no culture have no personalities like this is like a long trope in racist American um, folklore I know he's not he's obviously not doing that same project but the similarities were so they're stark and so uh, that was what provoked my attention in the first place Um, since from there I started obviously like I think you're right to point out that it's like part of this postmodern turn where uh, the body as a concept uh, is is part of the so-called discourse that we have around all kinds of political ideas, not just um, racial ones. So, I I think he's just playing with that 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 space. He's very much so a product of that, and he's just taking it to s- some extremes. I actually heard that the original title for his book was "Let the Bodies Hit the Floor," <laughs> but Drowning Pool <laughs> threatened to file a lawsuit. Um. But no, it was actually "Get Me Bodied." Uh, it's um, a Beyonce remix. So, you, like, okay, you're right here. I mean, and the, the sorry, the title of the article in Viewpoint is uh, "The Birthmark of Damnation: Ta-Nehisi Coates and the Black Body," and you write um, of this, uh, like, he, he locates like again and again, like the sort of physicality and physical violence of racism borne out on black people and and their bodies. He keeps talking about this, and you describe this as sort of an ascribing race to ontological meaning. And you write here, to imbue race with an ontological meaning, to make it a reality all its own, is to drain it of its place in history and its indelible roots in the discrete human action. To deny the role of life and people of politics is to foreclose on the possibility of liberation. Could you talk a bit about like this sort of strangely apolitical um, cast of mind that, that he advances in this book where he you write over you, you describe that he talks about uh white racism in america and in american history as being sort of a a force of nature he compares it to an earthquake or like a, a lightning storm and, th- and it is no more can be no more reasoned with or moved than a natural disaster yeah so two things 
we can talk about it theoretically, but I want to I want to hit you with it just like real real talk, real life. So, if you believe the stuff that Coates is saying, you cannot move politically, just straight up. And so like the the impetus for me critiquing it is that like I want to move politically and I want other people to move politically because I think racism can be defeated. I think sexism can be defeated. Like these things can actually we can actually organize to push to to new social forms and new 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 ways of being and living. So in the course of pursuing that agenda, I, I think of organizing as like the, 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 the tactics that I want to employ, right? So real life, real story. Day before I got hit by the car, right? I'm out there at the AT&T picket lines. And none of the workers on the picket, this is, first of all, these workers are black women for the most part with one Latino dude, right? No, nobody had had any picket line training, nothing. One of the workers, uh, a black woman, was really agitated. She was pissed about what was happening to her at her job. So she's antagonizing her bosses, yelling at them through the window. They call the mall cop. She gets into it with the mall cop. They call the, the police, right? The, the white cop shows up. So the mall cop was a black woman. And this is on the far south side of Chicago. So basically everybody's black. And then this white cop eventually shows up. Now, in Coates' book, when a white he he has this quote in there where he talks about when a white cop kills a black person, like he's a he's a helpless agent of our world's physical law, right? I wasn't thinking that shit when, <laughs> when this white cop came up. I'm like, okay, we gotta win. We've got to actually there's a struggle happening here. This is class struggle, and this woman's life is on the line because she was getting she was she was really agitated and getting into it with people, and the cop the mall cop actually ejected us from the property. She said, all of y'all got to go. And the white cop was about to arrest this black woman. And that's when I stepped in and started talking to the mall cop, talked her down, talked down the white cop and talked to um, the worker. And we, we worked things out so that we could like stay on the property and she wouldn't get arrested. Now, if I thought that this was some helpless agents and, oh my God, the white man is here. We can't do shit. It's over. Like, what would I have done? I wouldn't have done shit. You know, so... On the other hand, if you have a belief that, and it doesn't mean that you'll always win, it's that you have to struggle to win. You have to struggle with the belief that like something better is possible, not just like this aimless toil of like, well, I guess that's what happens, so I'll struggle to live on another day uh, just to survive as a black man in America. Like I can't resign myself to struggle, meaning simply moving from day to day. That's not like, that doesn't live up to, any sort of real political potential but to intervene in in struggle in motion and when relations of power are dynamic when you have the the the, the contact between um uh, everyday people and the systems of authority that oppress them you actually have to believe that you can change things and move on that belief and so that was what motivated me to uh to write this piece it was it's about organizing you know, not just about like analyzing what's wrong with racism. Like, duh, racism sucks. Kianga Taylor had to, Yamada Taylor had to um, cancel all her talks because fucking racism exists. The question is, how do we actually fight this shit? What are the best ways to, to, to struggle for real? And so I was just offended, actually. I mean, I'm going to speak candidly. I'm going to just keep it real. You know, I hit a little whiskey before we... Uh, we recorded this, you know what I'm saying? I'm loose now. So <laughs> You're in good company. Like when I re when I read this book, straight up, like it took me a while to move from being mad. You know, I was mad reading this. Like like just the 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 level of futility. Like the dude at the end of the book, one of the last paragraphs in the book, he says that hanging out at Howard's homecoming at a cookout at Howard University, which is, you know, for your uh, melanin challenged uh, <laughs> listeners. Is a, is a historically black um, university in D.C. He's at Howard University, though, and he's hanging out at the cookout, dancing, whatever. And he says that, that that moment of being around black people, dancing at the cookout, had a power more, like, more beautiful or something than in any voting rights bill. I'm like, bro! <laughs> Yeah, that was. I, I don't even. I don't even vote, dog. And that that shit is ludicrous. Hanging like, out I, with the right to vote is better than dancing at Howard's homecoming. Yo, I've been to homecoming straight up. I I went to one of the last lit homecomings. Like this is like four years ago when I lived in D.C. I hopped a fence with a bunch of black people and we bum rushed the show just to see Big Sean 
And yeah, that was a letdown. You know, you don't want to hop the fence for no Big Sean. <laughs> big, oh, big Sean. Big Sean. Sucks. Bone Thugs and Harmony. We thought Drake was going to come out because he had come out the year before. We were swag surfing in the crowd. Like the shit was lit. But I'm telling you, it is not better than the voting rights bill. I just <laughs> got to keep it real. Yeah. Uh, so when I read that, I was like, what is my brother talking about? What is yeah. he saying? But like, for him- and not only like is the analysis bad, like, but what can you do with that? When the cop shows up to the picket line about to bust up a black woman, what you gonna do? Nothing. But, so like that bothered me. Anyway, rant over. <laughs> yeah, but for for him, like Howard represents like this. I mean, it it's an elite university. Like it's a really good school. This is a, you know, this is him going back to his alma mater, I guess, and and yeah. and hanging out with a bunch of also incredibly successful people. I mean, well, I mean, well, it's kind of in that passage. He describes like these lawyers and all these people, but he also describes and this is a straight up quote. And I don't know who the fuck says stuff like this, but like my guy really did say this in this book. Busters. Like who describes people as busters? <laughs> is he well, a sixty-five-year-old white man? Like I'm saying, like, oh, so like that's a machine. <laughs> Did he write the hat wearing a Kangol cap? Or read the <laughs> yeah. book? Fuck. Basically, yo. Basically, some of the descriptors of black people in this book, I'm like, yo, why is there a seventy-year-old white man writing about? Like the jungle, like this is some Joseph Conrad Heart of Darkness type shit. Like, well, he's he like, does work at I the Atlantic. Chapter three, I got me a red bone back in 73. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm like, what is this? So, no, but he's talking about it across class lines, though, at Howard, at this home, at this cookout. He's saying not only are the judges and the lawyers there, the black judges and lawyers, the the black bourgeoisie or niggoisie, as, uh, as some of us call them, not <laughs> only are they there, but like, there's also these like street hustlers and drunkards, he says, you know, and all these other like low class people and he's saying that but it's all black so it's all beautiful and it's all good like i'm like bro really i i was at i when i lived in d i lived in dc for five years when i went to law school out there and a little bit after and i went i was on a panel with a black judge right and this black judge this is at a black church this judge was like i i had a black dude come into my courtroom with his pants sagging and I and he was like I lit into him. I he like lectured him from the bench and then sent him to jail. Okay, <laughs> for the crime of uh, baggy pants for sagging pants. I don't know what else was going on, but he was like he like reveled in like lecturing this man, this poor black man, um, lecturing him, and then sending him to jail uh, with no sympathy, like no cut, no nothing. And I'm like. The idea that you think that judges and broke black people ha- are like the same, like is absurd. You know, that's that is that's the kind of like racial analysis that cannot actually win. But it's not so accurate. Like, but like uh, I think, you know, it's important to mention uh, about about Coates and, and this book is that this book was a an absolute sensation. It was, you know, received glowing reviews from pretty much every quarter. It won a national book award. Like the, the, you know, the, uh, the praise for it just kept rolling in from like every corner of, of the literary world. And, you know, uh, maybe you, maybe you might disagree with me, but like, I think Coates is a talented writer in, in a way. And I think he's very good at, you know, ringing uh, sort of pathos, out of the stories he tells, but like, why do you think that that his kind of this kind of analysis and this book in particular is so easily and well received? Is it because it essentially throws its hands up and tells a you know white audience that uh, racism is basically unfixable and it's it's a problem of their souls rather than of you know politics and material relationships in our society? Yeah, I mean. Yeah, I think that's a big reason. It's clearly written for not just a white audience, but uh, a, an audience of a certain socioeconomic position too. That because uh, it's uh, what what's what's strange to me is he feels if you read the book, he feels disconnected from the black people that he grew up around in the hood in Baltimore. From from like the jump, like that's how it's always as an outsider or. There's always a discomfort 
in the descriptions of these other these others. So it's so it's easy for a person that's like like him or say a white person for example to to feel that too. Like I don't understand them either. And then if the if the solution is like this kind of pensive retreat to like your soul searching as like pretty much the main course of action. And keep in mind like he has contempt for the civil rights um era in particular. Like he expresses that throughout the book. And he's only able to at the book's conclusion to come to the to the to the to to come to a, a, an acceptance that maybe there's nothing shameful. He uses the word shameful. Maybe there's nothing shameful about what civil rights pioneers did, but uh, it's just true. Like he, that's his, that's his, like that's as committed as he is to like what it means to struggle politically. Okay, they did it. It happened. It's true. <laughs> not to actually take a position on it, not to take up a new form of struggle. And that's why like I I was keen in on the fact that that's why his his preferred mode of engage political engagement is reparations, something that A is highly unlikely to happen and B kind of involves this like navel gazing that doesn't actually change anything. Doesn't dare to go beyond white people having to recognize that some shitty stuff happened feel bad about it and then do basically a glorified affirmative action program, which is like what happened at Georgetown that I'm talking about in the piece. That's the, the rumblings of that were happening at Harvard. And I mentioned that it's easier for people to do that. White people in power in particular to do that rather than to have to actually engage with the class realities that create racism. Like they're the workers on the campus at Harvard who had to go on strike to get this school with a $37 billion endowment to give them just $35,000 a year, okay? and But they want to sit up and listen to have Coates speak to a full auditorium talking about, yeah, you know, slavery in the 17th century sure was bad. Harvard was involved. We get it. We're different now. But like, oh, these black workers in the cafeteria, get back to work. <laughs> like... That's the reality here. So I think the the juxtaposition between those two, the navel gazing versus political realities of black people, black life, not bodies, but like the people living with them, um, that juxtaposition was 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 just I, I, I it was just dumbfounding. Like I, I was I the more I've been working on this since the Bernie Sanders thing last year, you know, um, so February 20, 2016. So it, it, the piece has evolved, you know? So, and I wanted to take my time with it to like, see like, what is this guy like really doing, you know? Uh, Cause so I, so, and, and that's the most that's come out of it is basically the, the affirmative action program at Georgetown where they're tying, um, they're tying a preferential admission to the the direct the direct descendants of 272 slaves that were sold by Georgetown at a certain period in order to financially save the university and they're also renaming some buildings and that I'm like okay so um now he says that like the scope is debatable but I'm saying this is deeper than just a matter of scope of like how many people are going to be impacted by this this is a matter of substance that like this does not actually remedy the problems of racism and it actually allows people to paper over them and move on. Like, and last thing I'll say, you know, I cut this from the piece and there's a part two that's coming out or maybe even a part three where I go into more details like this, but um, we've had reparations in this country. I mean, reparations, I'm not against that in principle. Like when, where there's an injury, obviously like there are remedies. I went to law school, you know, so Come on, I understand this. But like when Japanese internment happened, there was there were reparations for the specific people that were interned. And there was an apology made. There was a whole bunch of stuff that happened, actually. And now now look at what's happening in the United That happened in, uh, I believe, the 80s. Now look at what's happening in the United States today. We've got still got scapegoating of immigrants. We've got detention centers. We've got a Muslim ban. Like all, like all the same kind of stuff is happening, despite the fact that you know there was supposed to be this spiritual renewal of like admitting that like 
like interning and scapegoating immigrants was wrong. And people and the United States did that. The U.S. government did that. And yet the policies continue because this shit has nothing to do with the spirit. Well, it's political. Let me ask you, though, like, do you think that this kind of uh, the sort of pessimism that that you're talking about? I mean, like that that is understandable and like it's sort of an attractive analysis in a way because i think for most people to look around it's not hard to say well shit is still really fucked up and this is still a really racist country and it seems like you know nothing is ever going to get better or change but like how do you argue against that in a way without sounding like you're are i don't know like uh, apologizing for the rotten state of the present or the past i think you have to that's why marxism comes into play like you have to understand these things historically, meaning you have to understand relations between people. Okay. You have to understand. That's why I'm saying that the indelible roots in discrete human action. What I mean by that is that it is undeniable that the roots of racism have to do with like specific things that people did at specific times and continue to do. And that's like what part two goes into. It's about, cause, cause I, like I said, I initially started writing this in response to his critique of Bernie Sanders, right? And the big critique is that, like, Bernie Sanders said that reparations wasn't practical and and um, Coates goes in on him around this issue, right? Um, so I'm saying that racism is practical, actually. So you cannot, you have to engage it on those terms. You have to resist it on those terms. And so when I say it's practical, I'm saying that, like, because its roots are in discrete human action, it's made by people doing specific things, Related to like the, I believe this is the Marxist part related to like the relations of production and and the like. On that note, I I do think it's really strange to look at um, Coates's kind of intellectual uh, bibliography because, you know, he does the bodies thing that's very Foucauldian. He, I, you know, he kind of touches on Afro pessimism and Wilderson that you brought, brought up, but also he said glowing things about. The Field Sisters, uh, who wrote Racecraft, and right. who have like, it, you know, to my mind, the best uh, sort of uh, historically grounded um, history of of racism in America. And their whole thesis is that there's nothing inherent about racism; that it's the product of of uh, you know material conditions. And he's spoken glowingly of them, but he comes to these totally opposite conclusions even though he's endorsed where they say racism comes from which i think the line and i'm butchering it but it's something like you know uh, slavery wasn't enacted to produce racism uh slavery was there to make cotton uh uh to you know pick sugar cane etc yeah i quote from that in the in the part two it's like 90 percent written at this point that was actually what I took him to task for because it, he knows better. That's the, that's yeah. the wild thing. Like he, there are excerpts in the book. There are excerpts like throughout his whole, the whole canon of, of like his whole, his whole, his whole discography. Okay, he got bars on this. All right, he's got, <laughs> he's got bars where he's admitting that like he he has this part where he says because because in the part two I talk about this he he disses Bernie Sanders and I'm no Bernie Bernie bro type dude I like have my critiques of him but like he disses Bernie Sanders for talking down about the reparations thing by saying like unfortunately Sanders radicalism has failed in the ancient battle against white supremacy right but then in the book in the fucking book he says difference in color and hue are old but like ordering like creating a hierarchy based on the, these factors is new like he's saying race is new in the in his actual book but then when he comes to like dis sanders when he intervenes politically all of that goes out the window and he says like this this stuff that he knows is not true so it's like what what is what is going on that was what motivated me initially i'm like what to like read the book and to like really develop a a, a, a theoretical critique of like what's going on like how is this related to Afro-pessimism and, and, and the like? Because he plays both sides in a way. And a lot of people are doing that. It's not just Coates. Like there's a whole, it, it, and you know, I haven't tested this idea, but you know, so new shit. <laughs> <laughs> Let's test it like, out right is, now. 
this is i'm gonna let it rip yeah. but like all right so you know i have this legal background where i went to law school right so i am no legal scholar i was there and i was i was more focused on like learning political shit than like the law per se because i was like quickly realized this is a dead end but one of the things that I did learn and held to really, and I continue to hold it really closely, is uh, how anti-discrimination law actually functions. So, for example, where, like, what, what is legally possible to, like, deal with issues of racism today is so narrow. Like, like anti-discrimination law is pretty much, it was invented for black people. It was invented to cover racism. And it's at its limits. It's just a question of enforcement at this point. But there's not a whole lot more that people are going to be able to get. Whereas for like um, transgender uh, rights, they're not covered by anti-employment discrimination law, for example. And so there's a lot more room for there to be legal reforms in that domain than for race, right? So in a sense, like, because we've reached the limit of like liberal technocratic top-down reforms, you have to, at a, in a certain way, acknowledge the the question, the materialism question, this issue of Marxism, this issue of like, what are the actual relations that are producing these things, which Coates does on the one hand, but at, on the other hand, like there's still this this unshakable attachment to technocratic liberalism, in the sense of like, okay, if we have rigorous anti-discrimination laws, if we have uh, a, uh, an authority system that recognizes certain injuries. This is still carrying over the kind of legal doctrine or mindset around there's an injury, so there's a remedy. Specific acknowledgement of the injury is attached to the remedy, whatever. It's, it's still all of that kind of technocratic liberal thing, even though we've reached the limit of basically what, that, what those types of reforms can produce. So he's kind of caught in this space where like there's not a whole lot more that's why like black lives matter has had such a difficult time actually translating the outrage to reforms like that can because the 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 what's possible within the legal realm what's possible um as far as following the technocratic liberal model it's pretty much exhausted on questions of race and so you can retreat to this issue of pessimism and say, oh, that means it's fundamental and inalterable and like it just cannot change because the limits of liberalism are exposed. But you that's have to go deeper than that and actually commit yourself to struggle. And that's why class, not socioeconomic status, but class is so important for organizing because that's what gives us the vehicle for being tr socially transformative. And that's what, so that's what he doesn't commit to. Going off that, like, I mean, I think that's that's interesting that this pessimism, sort of rightful pessimism of, it, it, you know, running into the, the reality of the world today, you know, like the outrage that, that people feel when they see um, injustice or racial injustice in the world, specifically as it regards to the uh, police and the basically the inability of the law as it as currently exists to, to deal with that. Like they, you run into a, a real sense of pessimism that's that's justified in a way, but then it becomes misplaced and it becomes mystified in a way, and leads to a kind of passivity. So you mentioned organizing, and I think like I I, I want to talk now, what, like so if we've reached the limits of like what the sort of the liberal imagination can do, what is like how, like what is the how do we expand the aperture like what is beyond that liberal horizon in terms of getting us to a place where you know hope or not that pessimism is in fact not justified but can be actively fought against or corrected yeah i mean i think pessimism of what is existing the existing remedies to racism and sexism and the like more than justified shit is fucked up let's keep it real you know but pessimism about what is possible, pes you know, a rejection of, of struggling to win, struggling to transform, that form of pessimism, that sort of weak nihilism, if you will, mm -hmm. that has to go. So that's not like, you know, I, I recognize this and this goes into a little bit of my bio biography. Like, so when I left law school, I, I knew I did not, I, I graduated, but I knew I didn't want to be an attorney. Uh, so when I left law school, the first I couldn't get a job because I had no job experience outside of doing stuff preparing for a legal career, right? And I'm a black dude. Ain't nobody trying to hire me for shit. So I was working 
dead in minimum wage jobs, like $10 an hour in DC. You can't survive on that shit. So I, uh, it was, I got fired from one of these jobs actually on some straight racist shit. Like, Hey yo. And first of all, if there's ever a riot in DC, my ass will be on the first flight. I will, (laughs) I will rent a bus. I will rent a whole field of buses to get everybody to run up on this store that fired me. <laughs> you know, we uh it's a racist shit. We getting it was it was like a it was one of these like hippie oh the the cows are grass fed and uh, <laughs> oh there's there we have the kombucha and uh <laughs> like, RL, we have ask- a uh, an establishment in DC that's also on our hit list. So <laughs> fucking Bosberger you motherfuckers you're going down. <laughs> I mean every every establishment you know, kombucha and grass-fed milk for the whole hood. I'm telling you, I'm going through and we busting them up. But anyway, like this this market, I worked at this market and uh, and there was two white women, like these like Hillary Clinton types, you know what I'm saying? Like, oh, I want a business, uh, woman power, like, yay. I'm like, okay, this is some bullshit right here. <laughs> so, because they're paying, they, we got women working here for like $10, like this shit is horrible. Um, they anyway there's a whole lot I could say about that but the first day I'm the only black person that works in this market right first day she's asking me to change get change from the bank and she hands me some money from the cash register before she lets me take it she goes now don't run off with this <laughs> the <laughs> fuck oh fuck <laughs> what so how, then, how I, much change like, was it yo it was like $200 something like that like I'm gonna start a new life on this shit. Like, it's nineteen. It's like it's like eighteen ninety three. Like I'm gonna move to a town fifteen miles away. Two hundred dollars. I'm Gucci. I'm good. I'm a new man. Like no hell no. What the fuck? You can buy Plus, a you can buy a cart and uh, an ox to pull it. Right. You know what the fuck? So. And plus, this is a gentrifying neighborhood. So there's cops all over the place, and it's right outside the door. So I'm like sh- I'm like fuck. It's, I instantly know. This is some racist shit. I'm in trouble. I'm not going to be able to keep this job. Like, this is fucked up. Fuck. Like, and there's nothing I can do. Now, you hear me talking right now. I got no problem defending myself and speaking up, right? But when you broke as shit, you have no union, you have no power, you have no squad, you can't do anything to, like, check the, pri- I'm gonna check the privilege of this, like, white boss that's oppressing the fuck out of me, right? I, I can't do anything. Because I have no po- collective power, right? There's no struggle for real. There's no potential for it. So she says that, right? I, t- I like try to take the money and like chuckle it off. <laughs> She's like, no, I'm serious. This is all before she lets go of the bills. I'm oh serious. God. You wouldn't get very far. Jesus. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> now, now, keep in mind, like I said, there's these cops out there with guns. You see how black people get killed every day. She could very easily be like, he's running off with the money, and I'm dead. This is the reality. But what the fuck am I going to do about it in this situation? Not a goddamn thing. Okay? I was quiet. I didn't say shit. I tried to laugh it off, right? I'm trying to survive. All right? So I take the money over and get it changed. Now, they have a two-week probationary period for hiring people, right? Everybody gets hired after the two weeks, except my black ass. I'm the only one that doesn't get hired, right? But what the fuck am I going to do? She calls me down into the basement, the same basement where she had, like, you know, accused me of stealing, basically. Um, uh, this is the. She called me down. <laughs> she, uh, this is the, the basement is where they had the precogs that uh, anticipated <laughs> your right. uh, future crime. You know, what is this? What the fuck is this? So she calls me down there and fires me two weeks into the job. And, and like I said, like I am struggling at this point, right? And it was th- at that point in that period of my life, like that wasn't even the only thing that was going on. Like, because um, I had to, I had no, I had lost my housing. Like, shit was rough. It was at that point where I was like, hold the phone. This shit that I learned in college about like checking privilege and oh, white supremacy, this shit is useless. And furthermore, like it's useless in the face of like real black people dealing with real racism. Like, and furthermore, like most black people live in these conditions. Like, like uh, 22% of all black households in this country, 22% of all households live on less than $15,000 a year. How the fuck they gonna check some privilege out of that shit? <laughs> How, you know, like, this is real shit. 
Like, and there's not a whole lot that you can, that's where you feel like, holy shit. So when I'm critiquing Coates for having pessimism, it's not because I don't recognize the realities of suffering, of racialized suffering, of gender-based suffering. I get it deeply. When I was in law school, I had to read these cases over and over again and understand that there was nothing that this legal system was going to do to be able to shift this. I understand. That's why you have to embrace organizing, though. That's why you have to embrace class struggle as the vehicle for changing these things. So like, so to get into that a little bit, like beyond me just preaching like, like my dad, <laughs> uh, like what I discovered after leaving that, that's why I went to go work at the union. I went to go work at Unite Here. And I've continued doing labor organizing stuff, but I've, I've been thinking like, if racism is part of like material relations, discrete human action, right? What are the ways that we can shift that social terrain upon which the ideology of race is created and the actions reproduce it? How can we shift the social terrain? Because that's what the Fields sisters say. They say that like race is an ideology. Ideologies are, are ways that every, people make sense of their everyday lives. Their everyday lives are like the social terrain that makes up their daily existence, right? So you have to shift the social terrain in order to like change the ideology. So how do you do that? Well, class struggle can do that. It can give people not only in the long term, like to transform the society so that those relations of production shift and so the ideologies don't make sense, whatever. But even in the short term, that kind of thing, what I needed was like a union in that situation where I'm being harassed racially by my boss, right? Yeah. And so black, so I started looking at like, how do I begin to engage in collective forms of struggle that are not rooted in the morality of white people, but are actually about chin checking these motherfuckers. Like I'm not (laughs) out here trying to like be buddy. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, like it's about power. Don't get up here and tell me no shit. Like dancing at homecoming is more gorgeous, has a power more gorgeous than the voter. Fuck that. I'm trying to, I'm trying to get some real shit pop in like that like people are dying fuck your feelings now feelings are important i'm not saying that you know <laughs> well, that RL, we should it's become sort of like, an like, unfeeling when, person well like when you're describing here it sort of reminds me of like when people discuss you know like capitalism overall as being somehow as being sort of natural in that like human beings are innately sort of yeah. competitive and greedy and like this sort of just plays to human nature in a way. And I suppose you could say basically everything is natural because like everything is just a product of material physical processes. But I guess like I always get suspicious whenever people bring up these biological explanations for features of human society because in a way not only is it saying that in a way it's sort of justified but it's also saying that it can't be changed right like it's like it's going against human nature yeah and when you discuss things like ideology or an economic system like capitalism or a social phenomenon like racism that these are products of human beings they are institutions created by human beings and as such they can be acted upon and changed by other human beings and that they're dynamic, they're in motion. So that's why like, I'm developing this idea of like, race as class politics in motion, right? Because so what the, what the Field Sisters are saying is that like, the, the class politics of like, transatlantic colonialism first necessitated extremely cheap labor. So in the beginning, that's European indentured servants with some African slaves for life, whatever. Certain stuff happens that becomes untenable. And so they shift it to African slaves for life being the primary um, engine for economic growth through transatlantic colonialism in the beginnings of capitalism, blah, 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 blah. Okay. What that means is that like you have to actually engage these things um, as, as if they are people and so if that's the case, then that has to be how we organize. It has to be a people-centered organizing approach because like basically right now we have a lot of mobilization, like a lot of, we can, you know, people have found some success turning out people to show up to protest. That's how I really cut my teeth was during Occupy. Like I found out about Occupy through Twitter in 2011. I got super involved in New York first, the first week of Occupy. Then I went back to DC and stayed involved. And that was like the first, my first foray into activism. 
But what I discovered was like this activism stuff is not creating like the transformation in the day-to-day life that we need. Like it's like these one-off things. We're not sustained. It's not sustained engagement. Not enough, I thought, or I felt, and I experienced. So I started shifting. And so what I discovered after I got involved in the union and um, after I started embracing this materialism, I, I discovered like, I started reading like about how did, how do people like move together to do shit? Like that's the fundamental question. How do you do that in a sustained way that transforms people both personally and transforms the political horizon and the political conditions? That's what we're trying to do. That We need power to do that. And so like the way it starts, like, I mean, we have to realize how weak we are, like straight up. People, people are on the left are like popping off like Syria. They're like, they like have hard ass opinions about Syria or what, what have you. But yo, let's keep a 100. How many of us would struggle just to like knock on our next door neighbor's door and ask to borrow some sugar? Like, let's keep it real. Like we don't actually have relationships with one another in real life. And like any successful, not just revolution, but organizing effort that is, like long-term requires trust-based relationships, all right? And it's those are relationships that you build not only through the politics, but just you use those relationships throughout your life to actually politicize them to reach political goals. And like right now, what we have is, like I went through this phase where I got woke. I was woke as fuck. Ooh, I was woke. <laughs> I was the wokest of them all. Like I was woke before like woke was a thing. <laughs> Again, like I, I graduated from college in 2010. I was woke as fuck. Okay. Because I thought politicizing relation, like politicizing my personal life meant analyzing it to death and like policing what other people said and whatever. What I discovered once I started actually organizing people is when the personal is political, it's actually about using trust-based relationships to connect to people, to move them, not to lecture them or to shame them. Really, this is a lot about shame. And so what I discovered was, let's take an issue like sexism, right? So when I was in the union, I, was with, I went out to Philadelphia with some workers. We took a delegation of workers out there because we were doing a bigger convening to deal with this company called Aramark, which is a food service company. We're taking on this company. And in the course of going out there, one of the, I noticed one of the workers, sexually har- a male, um, sexually harassing another worker. This is actually, the, it was a black dude and a Latina woman. So I sit in between them eventually because I didn't really know what the nature of their relationship was. Like, I didn't know whether this was like how they talk to each other or what. So it took me some time to like figure it out. Then I sit in between them and she says to me, um, thank you. You saved my life. as like a joke. She's like, <laughs> and I'm like, uh oh, this is serious because I sat in between them in the car, which prevented him from like being all on her and stuff. Right. So I kept my eye on it. And then when we got back, he was, they're both in my local, right? Or my old local, because I I left this job. But they were both in the local. So what do I do? I didn't like confront him about his male privilege and all this stuff. I didn't, I didn't try to politicize it by, by talking about, you know, uh, anti-oppression, you know, stuff. That was, I was not approaching it like an activist. I was approaching it like an organizer. So I say to him, all right, yo, I believe in your leadership. We did X, Y, and Z things together. In fact, he was one of the core organizers on the, uh, the campaign that I talked about against Aramark at the college in, um, in, the, in Chicago. So he was an important member of our organization. So I talked to him like, yo, dog, so is this woman that like, so is this woman that was being harassed too. She was also a big leader in our organization. And I was like, bro, I believe in you and I believe in your leadership. We did X, Y, and Z stuff together. We, we took on the boss we want and you were vital for accomplishing that and I want to see you do more. But here's the thing. When you act like this, not only do you damage your own ability to lead, you uh, damage the ability of our comrade, this woman, to lead and to feel comfortable being here but also those things together jeopardize the project that we're trying to create. So I'm calling him for political accountability to common struggle rather than doing some kind of abstract identity-based thing where I'm saying, you as a man need to, that's like not even how I'm trying to engage him, right? Now, this shit worked. Like, not only did he like take it in and accept what I was saying, we didn't have like a blow up, which was like, 
I was so shook because I was used to activism spaces. So I was like, this man about to cut my head off, you know? Mm-hmm. Not, not only did that not happen, dude accepted what we were talking about. And then I didn't even ask him to do this. But in a bigger group meeting, he uh, spoke about the importance of addressing sexual harassment between workers just unprompted, right? On his own. And like had had really taken this in and brought it to like our organizing project and talked about like him needing to change and like oh whatever right so what I'm saying is I'm not saying that we need to ignore this stuff or that acknowledgement doesn't need to happen I'm saying that fucking Harvard and shit acknowledging the shit is not the ticket to transforming the conditions that social terrain that produces the ideology and that. Uh, and that and that creates the oppression i'm saying that through the vehicle of common struggle usually most most likely on class terms you can use that as a vehicle to to actually do the to to address the specificity of racism the specificity of sexual harassment and violence and whatnot but that bringing people into common struggle usually through a vehicle like class is the way that you can actually accomplish that. And you have to have faith in that because that faith is what gives you the impetus to act and act decisively. And that's like what has to happen. Oh, 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 wait. One one last thing. Now, I said a lot of stuff in the abstract, but like what I'm for real trying to say, I, I, I'm organizing with DSA now, right? I've so heard we're building them. like these organizing skills here in Chicago. And the reason why I'm saying we got to start with that is because in order to... Like you have to have trust-based relationships to do the kind of work that I'm talking about, to call people into common struggle and like have that be the basis of accountability. So um, you, so you got to shift. That requires us to shift how we do political work. It's not enough to just mobilize and but remain disconnected. You know, we've got to actually build lasting connections and trust-based connections with people as we do the political work. And that requires skill. And that requires vulnerability. That requires storytelling. That's like, that's what I was trying to bring to bear in the project, in like what I was writing. I was trying to like capture that in, in the piece that I was writing, that it's about storytelling. It's about, it's about common struggle through, oh, I didn't get a chance to say through trust, but that's how you have to do it. So you really, we have to like, last thing I'll say is we have to really, look at ourselves in the mirror and be like, yo, how, you know, how, how many of us know our neighbors? How many of us know our coworkers outside of work? How many of us have the kinds of relationships that we need to actually build a base and build and build like, and actually politicize to move things forward? You know, that's what we have to do. And like, you have to get over yourself to a degree. Like I had to, like, I used to be scared as shit to talk to people. Like I could talk to a big crowd of people in a speech, but I struggled to just like knock on that next door neighbor or to um, go in and like talk to, just talk to strangers basically. And like, that's the stuff that we're going to have to do. We're going to have to get good at that. It's not enough to signal on the internet about some shit. We've got to actually transform those everyday relationships so that we can, we can change everyday life. And that's the kind of stuff that it takes to change racism. Last thing is you can see how that works in some of the stories that have come out about people in unions and how they've been able to stand up against racism. Like just last week, there were nooses that were put around uh, the, the, I believe, the Oakland ports, um, the longshore workers out there. They, were, they had a bunch of nooses at their workplaces, and, and somebody uh, wrote racial slurs against black people at their work site. And they banded together, and they went on fucking strike. They walked off the job in, in protest of this to put pressure on the company to do something about this, right? Like, they had changed their everyday relations and had trust-based relationships with one another to actually be able to fight that racism. The same thing happens with uh, workers, this is years ago, in 1973, I believe, over in uh, Scotland. There were workers that they found out that Rolls, they worked at a Rolls-Royce factory. They found out that the factory was repairing the engines that were used to bomb Allende's palace, which led to him like dying in the coup, this US-sponsored coup against him in Chile. And they found out that the plane engines were being repaired. But because they had those trust-based relationships, they had that common struggle, they were able to mobilize and be like, we refuse to repair these engines. And so the engines 
actually like rusted out and never and it was an international incident hugely embarrassing for pinochet and they were only able to do that because they had these types of relationships they had this common struggle they had this class-based vehicle to actually do solidarity in practice anti-racism in practice that's what i'm talking about the practical nature so look for more of that in part two of this um, (laughs) essay dealing with you know because i gotta you know big up my own shit you know what i'm saying so part two of this essay i'm about to drop fire to like talk about what does it mean to address these things in practical terms and like why organizing is the key it's not even about like all this philosophizing i had to get the philosophizing out of the way in part one you know what i'm saying i had to hit him with the with the real shit though in part two so look out for that we will be on the lookout for that rl stevens trust in yourself trust in others trust in us chapo trap house rl thanks so much for joining us word thanks a lot bye cheers